Now as we open God's word, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you are gracious and merciful to us. Lord, as we open your word, would you allow for your words to go deeply into our hearts, into our minds, into our imaginations, so that we would be gripped by your gospel and that we would learn to, to walk with you daily, considering what your word has to say to us today. Would you give us grace at this time to, to focus on what your word says and to, to receive what you want us to hear today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the major and yet subtle challenges to Christianity in the West is the developing field of psychology. In this field, scientists try to understand how the mind affects behavior. And one of the more popular forms of psychology seeks to help people out of their, their depression so they can experience happiness. Psychology is very popular because depression is prevalent and happiness is the holy grail of human pursuits. Psychology Today, an online resource, defines happiness as a state of well-being that encompasses living a good life, one with a sense of meaning and deep contentment. It also goes on to cite healthy perks, such as cardiovascular health, um, the immune system, inflammation levels, and blood pressure, among other things. So with this clear ethical goal of happiness and the scientific data to support its benefits, developments in the field of psychology have rendered the Bible irrelevant in the eyes of many. Some will call the Bible outdated or irrelevant or even damaging. A 2011 Barna study shows that nearly one of five youths leave the church because their faith, quote, does not help with depression or other emotional problems, end quote. So people turn to, to clinical psychology, popular psychology, or even positive psychology in order to help with their depression problem and to find happiness. Now, probably to the shock of many Quebecers and Canadians, as well as Christians, the Bible text we're going to look at today speaks into this very common human experience of depression and our quest for happiness. So I invite you to turn to Psalm 32 with me. And as we turn there, uh, I'm going to read the uh, first couple verses. And uh, this, this psalm is a psalm of David, who was the king of Israel. So here, uh, Psalm 32, starting at verse 1, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, now, I'll just pause here for a second. The word blessed in Hebrew um, is, uh, maybe a better translation would be happy. Uh, very, very happy. So we, we could actually just read it this way. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Well, uh, maybe an objector might say something like this, uh, but uh, Jonathan, Christians are, are happy, or at least tend to be happy, only because they are naive. Like, listen to this. Forgiveness, iniquity, deceit, it's all religious jargon that disconnects you from reality. Don't you know, Jonathan, that happiness is elusive? It's so hard to find happiness because life is difficult and harsh. Don't you know that people are depressed and anxious in life? 
well, that's a, that's a very good, very good point. And um, and uh, you know, if if this wasn't a hypothetical conversation, uh, I would actually be able to respond. Yes, yes, I do know that. I do know that um, that this is a, a topic of you know of difficulty where people are actually depressed and and where happiness is difficult to find in life. Last week, I had the honor of sharing my testimony at a men's breakfast over Zoom, and um, I was able to share how depression was huge in, in my life. It was instrumental in my life. I experienced before I became a Christian, uh, very, very deep depression and anxiety, and um, and sometimes I still experience it after, you know, after the fact, now that I am a Christian, I still experience it sometimes. And so depression is... Uh, I, I understand that depression is something that is quite common and that happiness is difficult to find. In fact, the, the government of, of Quebec projects that over 20% of Quebec's population deals with depression. And let's be honest here, this is a hugely underestimated number because people don't always identify their depression for a variety of reasons. And so here we have this problem. Uh, but uh, I also want to share something. Uh, over the last couple of years, there's been this song, uh, this radio hit called um, Il est où le bonheur? So basically translated, where is happiness? Uh, it was this, uh, this song that played in, in Quebec. I, I believe the singer-songwriter is French, but uh, it, it was a huge hit in Quebec. It had over 40 million uh, views or listens in the first year. And uh, in this song, basically what the singer does is uh, he acts as a type of sage who uh, tells us that after experiencing everything under the sun, uh, everything, every human experience that you could have, he knows, he has found out that happiness, desirable as it is, can never really be harnessed. And so there's this one line near the end of the song where he sort of reveals his cards. Uh, he sort of, as the song goes along, he says, you know, uh, I've tried this, I've done that, uh, but I still can't find happiness. So there's this one line near the end, it's kind of like the punchline maybe, where he says, uh, and I'll translate here, happiness is stupid, because it's usually after the fact, only after the fact that we realize it was there. And so he's really, highlighting the elusive nature of happiness. And people loved that song. They loved it. Uh, it was especially popular among boomers, yet it was my millennial non-Christian friend who showed it to me with great excitement because he thought it rang true. It was insightful to him. So, okay, so, so we see that, okay, depression is real. It's a common experience. Happiness, we want it, but we can't harness it. What's going on? Um, and, uh, you know, we read the Bible text, which talks about happiness. Happy is the one who's this. Happy is the one who's that. And our objector friend here said that, uh, that this is just religious jargon. Does the Bible lead people into disillusionment and naivete by telling them that they can be truly happy in life while also dismissing the reality of depression? Like, is that what the Bible is doing? Well, Let's read verse uh, 3, and we'll read verse 4 as well, uh, just to see what the Bible might say about this. So let's read verses 3 and 4, where it says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. 
My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a depressed person here in verses 3 and 4. David, the anointed king of Israel, recorded his, his depression in a song. So maybe surprisingly to a lot of us uh, here in Quebec and Canada, uh, and even among Christians, the Bible acknowledges depression and anxiety in life. Now, just as a bit of an aside here, uh, we often forget, and uh, many of our friends might not even know, that the Bible was written by human authors while also being inspired by God. Uh, it is neither solely the work of people nor uh, the Word of God without the human hand and mind and context. Uh, and so here we see uh, this is God's Word, God's inspired Word, and yet so human at the same time. Okay, let, let's go back. So depression can be described as, you know, maybe the loss of ambition, uh, emotional numbness, fear and withdrawal, fatigue. Those are all ways that we can sort of identify depression. And as we look at how David describes his experience, well, let's, let's look at that again. He says in verse 3, For when I kept silent, he speaks of silence, which is a type of fear and withdrawal. Uh, he talks about my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. There's this sensation of rotting inside, emotional numbness. And then he groans all day long, this unceasing groaning and rotting. And then day and night, he's probably sleepless. And this continual sense of weight over him where he says that your hand was heavy upon me, just feels this weight over his shoulders and then lastly, his strength is dried up. We see that in verse 4, uh, which uh, I mean, talks about physical numbness and fatigue, uh, probably from the chemicals released in his body as a reaction to fear and withdrawal. Now, in approaching the topic of happiness, the Bible doesn't undermine our experiences with depression and anxiety, not for Christians or non-Christians. In fact, it affirms that it is a real part of our human existence. And so anyone who says Christians cannot be depressed is wrong-headed. Psalm 32 is clear that even the people of God can be depressed. And so here we see uh, David, the anointed king of Israel, who is depressed and anxious with all the symptoms uh, in verses, uh, outlined in verses 3 and 4. Now, I'm not a clinical expert, but I do speak from personal experience and with some research. And from what I gather, depression can be caused by a range of hurts, such as physical to emotional to psychological to social brokenness. They, they can all contribute to depression. But in all of these spheres where depression can happen, there seems to be an underlying sphere from which all depression ultimately stems. Let's look at that again in verses 3 and 4, because the Bible is going to give us a bit of an insight here as to what is really happening in depression. It's not undermining the other spheres, um, you know, physical or emotional or psychological or social. It's not going to undermine that. But it's going to say, it's going to situate those in a, in a deeper, more profound, wiser context. So verses 3 and 4 again. Uh, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and we'll pause here. Your hand was heavy upon me. Um, all depression ultimately stems from our separation from God. 
And so here's my first point. Hostility against God ruptures our relationship with him and the whole created order. I'll say that again. Hostility against God ruptures our relationship with him and the whole created order. See, the Bible begins by telling us that we were created to be in the presence of God with his light, his life, and his love. And human beings separated from God to pursue their own autonomy. And we follow that. Uh, We follow our own autonomy, our own ego, our own projects, our own vanity, our own pride, which has led all of humanity uh, into darkness, death, and destruction. Now, those of you who are more familiar with the Bible, um, you might recall that it, it talks quite a bit about God's hand and uh, whether it's you know his mighty hand where he um, where he stops the enemies of of the righteous or maybe his protective hand but here we see a heavy hand we see a heavy hand and so you might be wondering how many hands does God have well that's a good <laughs> that's a very good question and I'll I'll suggest that there's there's it's this one hand um, not that it matters it's not anyway it's, it's not like it matters in any degree but Um, I'll give you this illustration. Um, When my son does something good, uh, whether he's doing a puzzle or makes a a letter with his Play-Doh, and I put my hand on his shoulder to tell him how proud I am of him, he proceeds to tell me with great excitement about what he accomplished. Now, when he does something suspicious, on the other hand, and I put the same hand on his shoulder to inquire of him, He squirms and he tries to pull away so he can run and hide. My hand is the same, but the circumstance is different. In other words, David lived as the God of his own life, thinking he could live hidden from God. He kept silent, thinking that he is autonomous, thinking that he can hide from God. He lived apart from God, following his own path, but the Lord put his hand on his shoulder to remind him of his sovereign lordship. And because the Lord is holy and righteous, his holy and righteous hand is said to be heavy upon sinful David's and our consciences and to dry up his and our strength to mercifully call us back to himself and away from entertaining our pride and vanity in the future. I'll say that again. God's righteous and holy hand comes upon us when we go into sin, when we all our eyes can see is darkness, and we feel his holy and righteous hand on our shoulders and it feels heavy in our conscience. Now I also want to note that sometimes what we feel in depression is the Lord's active hand calling us to return to him in a deeper trust and a deeper abandonment, or self-abandonment rather. The Lord is making us feel the hopelessness of a situation while also showing us his righteousness. Think about it further with me for a moment. You know, we're talking about moral categories here. If morality, uh, good or bad, or righteousness or unrighteousness, is simply a social construct, as atheism would say, how does depression even exist? I mean, if everything is neutral and equal, and just on this huge continuum, Uh, then nothing is depressing or nothing ought to be depressing. 
because everything is just neutral and equal. There's no right or wrong. There's no evil and there's no uh, good. There's no justice or injustice. But the reality is depression exists because things are not how they ought to be. And the problem with evolution is that it cannot, or atheism, um, it cannot account for that because there is no cosmic ought to be uh, in life. Uh, there is no way to account for that. And um, as a second note, uh, moreover, when you're in a situation where you speak up on a moral issue in public, whether at work or among friends or family, uh, and a non-Christian sees or hears about your righteousness, um, the righteousness of the Lord that's that's upon you, they often feel or express great discomfort. Have, have you experienced that? Like, I've, I've experienced that. And especially if you discuss things like sexuality or, or theft uh, or corruption or uh, ethical issues around life or social relationships and so on. But those are often conversations the Holy Spirit uses to lay his hand upon them, to reveal the holiness of God and what he requires of them in their lives. So the Lord's holy and righteous hand is felt differently depending on our, uh, on our hearts and our circumstances. To the righteous, it is a comforting and reassuring hand. To the unrighteous, it is a heavy and terrifying hand, yet always the same holy and righteous hand of God. Now, for someone who, who finds him or herself in depression, um, you might be wondering, like, what, what, what is the solution then? Um, like, what is the solution to my depression? Uh, is it like the song that I mentioned earlier, which uh, tells us that you can really experience your that you can't really experience your way to happiness you just have to be very diligent in identifying it when it's there i guess um yeah you just have to keep your eyes open and, and really be on the ball because you might miss your happy moment or is it like something uh, along the lines of positive psychology blogs which suggests you know writing a gratitude journal and practicing mindfulness and awareness when you are in a special moment uh, I mean, th those are, I mean, they're not bad things in, in of themselves. You, you want to be aware of, of the moment. You want to be wise uh, in the moment and be able to appreciate uh, the good things the Lord gives and, and all that. But um, is that, you know, should we turn to the song? Should we turn to positive psychology to, to get out of depression? Well, the thing is that although these may sound spiritually sophisticated, they are quite fundamentally religious in their own right. And by religious, I don't, I don't mean a positive religious. See, the song says, uh, in your attempt to find happiness in experiences, you provoke the wrath of the God of happiness so that now, to appease it, you must live every moment in fear that you might miss out on the blessing of the God, namely the electrifying experience of happiness. And if we listen to the blog, well, on the other hand, it says, you may be the source of your depression. You may be the barrier in your pursuit of happiness, but you are also your own savior. If you follow these steps that I give you, you can reach the heavenly bliss of happiness. Like, doesn't that sound religious? <laughs> Does it, like there's even the, the, uh, the, the capricious God in the song and then there's all these you know, laws that we, we need to follow so that we can attain a prize. And uh, for a lot of us, you know, is is I mean, we might be wondering like is, is Christianity any different like isn't there isn't God like angry sometimes and isn't are there rules to follow well um, we'll talk about that in a second but um, you know following these pieces of advice these popular advice 
would actually perpetuate depression rather than help us out of it. See, the fear of the capricious God of happiness or the harnessing uh, of a savior complex to set myself up for greater, uh, greater failure. Uh, it's not helpful. It's not going to lead us into uh, this liberation that we're looking for, this deliverance, this happiness. So let's take a look at the psalm again because, well, what if it's true? What if God's hand is present in our depression, calling us to humbly turn to him? And if so, wouldn't these popular opinions miss something quite essential to the equation? So let's turn to verses 3 and 4 again. Uh, so it says, For when I kept silent, and um, here kept is, uh, notice that it's the past tense. Uh, for when I kept silence, is going to going to anticipate a resolution in a moment. And uh, silent here, uh, David is not talking about, you know, he's not saying... You know, if we just learn to talk about, you know, our stuff with our friends, uh, if we learn to, yeah, just to, to go for a coffee on Saturday morning and just spill our hearts over, uh, over the table to, over to our friend, uh, he's not talking about that. He's actually talking about keeping silent from God. For when I kept silent, and the implication is from God, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And then, uh, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So what was David's next step? Uh, we saw that he was anticipating a next step. Let's look at verse 5, where he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We see here David confessed his wrongdoings to God. He opened up his heart to the Lord. He relinquished his deeply embedded sense of ego and autonomy and handed it over to God, saying, God, take this. Take this. This is just what it is, God. Look at my heart. And he was just being open to the Lord, just being very, very honest, uh, not pulling back from details, just open. Now, we don't have the details here, and, and there's a reason for that. Uh, the reason why we don't know what this sin is, uh, it's why it's veiled from us, is so that you and I, uh, in our depression, could actually find ourselves in this text, that we could actually use these words as a prayer. So what did the Lord do next? Did he look to see if David did more good deeds than bad deeds? Well, no, no, he didn't do that. Uh, it says uh, in, in verse 5 uh, that at the end, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God forgave David, and God is so forgiving that he went as far as sacrificing his own son, Jesus, so that you and I could see the depth of his love, humbly turn from our ego, egotism, and receive his forgiveness. And uh, this begins to answer the very first question, uh, what is at the core of true happiness? I mean, that's a big question. What is at the core of true happiness? And the answer which the Bible gives that Christians live is this, uh, being in union with the God who created happiness is true happiness. I'll say that again. Being in union with the God who created happiness is true happiness. Now, there are many ways that we, uh, we could explain what we hope to accomplish in the church plant, in St. Lazar, and in the surrounding areas, uh, but one of them is to call people to find their true happiness 
in connection to the God who made happiness and the God who made a way for people to know him in a personal and saving relationship. See, all around us, people are, are avoiding acknowledging their sins. And, and maybe even some of us here uh, listening to this, uh, we avoid acknowledging our sins. We, we cover our sins with things like our moral performance or great artistic endeavors or relationships or sports or work or pleasure and so on. There's all these ways that we seek to cover our sins. And what we're doing essentially is covering up a rotting corpse. I, I'm... I'm I'm sorry, but not really. I mean, this is what, uh, if you read Colossians, uh, that's basically the image that uh, the Apostle Paul gives, that, that we are rotting corpses uh, when all that we need to do is to turn to the God of life, the God who is life, to receive his gift of grace. We just need to take off the mask, the covering, uh, and we need to tell him as plainly, as honestly as possible so that we can receive his forgiveness, and by receiving his forgiveness, God gives us a new status in Jesus. He gives us the status of righteous and blameless before the Holy God, our Maker. This is how the Christian life begins and how union with God is maintained. This is what walking with God looks like. We continually ask for forgiveness for our sins. Why? Well, that's how relationships work. I mean, if I... If I uh, if I never asked forgiveness to my wife uh, and I just kind of lived on after every time that I say something that, that would hurt her or that I do something that hurts her, um, we wouldn't have much of a relationship, would we? We wouldn't have much of a relationship. Uh, but very essential to relationship is that maintenance, that acknowledging, that opening up and uh, with God uh, we are safe. There's no safer place for us to open up because he already knows and he is willing to forgive. He is willing to give us a new status of righteous and blameless before him. Now, if we were to stop here uh, in the sermon, um, it, you know, it would be a bit naive. It would be silly to say, you know, trust in Jesus and all your life problems will be solved. I'm sure some of you have heard that. I heard that. Uh, but that wouldn't be true. I mean, that's just not true. Many Christians, including pastors, suffer from depression. And so the next questions are, like, why is that? And how do we safeguard our happiness? Well, let's turn to verse 6 for a moment. Um, and uh, because David is going to give us a realistic picture of life as a Christian, as well as four applications to safeguard our happiness in God. Now, these applications are markers of relationship with God, and they are essentially what John the Baptist uh, called walking in a manner worthy of our repentance. Uh, so repentance is turning away from our former lives of pride and vanity, as well as walking in a new direction towards God. And we see that in, uh, starting at verse 6, where uh, David says, Therefore, and therefore is the big transition word in the psalm, uh, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And so he's, he's saying, offer prayer. If you want to continue uh, to walk with the God who created happiness uh, and in happiness with him, uh, pray, pray to the Lord. And then he says, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Uh, it's a, maybe this translation is 
a, a bit uh, fuzzy. I'll just uh, I'll just paraphrase. It's basically saying even your 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 circumstances where it seems like uh, the waves are are making you drown, the circumstances in life are making you drown. Um, not even those waves can stop you from praying, nor can they stop your prayers from reaching the Lord. Uh, so prayer is a powerful tool. Prayer is something that God gives for us to respond to his grace, respond to his mercy uh, with gratitude, with worship, with petitions. Uh, that's how we maintain uh, that relationship with him. That's how we, 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 we keep happiness um, in our lives. And then the second thing is uh, seven, uh, verse seven, where um, basically David talks about finding our refuge in, in God or um, making him our, the source of our identity. So refuge or identity. Verse seven, it says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You see that here God is a refuge for us. He's a hiding place, but he's also for us and he fights for us. Um, and God is going to win the final battle over death. Uh, he has done that uh, at the cross through Jesus and through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection. And at the end of time, uh, he will make uh, away with death once and for all. Okay, so we have prayer. We have finding refuge or identity in God. And then uh, thirdly, in verse 8 and 9, verses 8 and 9, we see that uh, to safeguard our happiness, we need to learn wisdom. And so it reads in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. See that intimacy, that God is going to be with us, teaching us and training us. Um, wisdom. Uh, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Um, see, here it's, um, <laughs> David is also honest about the fact that uh, depression can come from our foolishness, from our foolish living, from, our, uh, from, resisting, uh, from, from resisting growing in wisdom. Uh, David is being honest that, uh, that we can be depressed because of our own doings, because of our own foolishness. Uh, I mean, we all know people who, who suffer from bad decisions that they've made in life. And uh, one thing that I, that I have to say, you know, since becoming a Christian, uh, it probably took a few years, but I eventually started reading Proverbs and started to, to seek wisdom from, from godly counsel, uh, older men and women. And, um, and one of the things that I'm so grateful for is that I don't regret those years. I, I have very, very little regret. And that's not to say that I, I made bad bad choices or that I that I didn't make bad choices or that I didn't you know do bad things. I did, but I just have this sense that um, having grown or tried to grow or pursued wisdom in those years, I, I look back with very little regret, very little remorse, and uh, that's something that is a gift from the Lord. And uh, then fourthly. Uh, we see that the Lord gives us a, a cause for celebration, but also commands us to be to, to celebrate, so as to maintain and safeguard our happiness in Him. Uh, verses ten and eleven uh, reads, "Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but..."
but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Again, he's honest about sorrows. Sorrows happen in life, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. God's love is toward us, is for us, is around us, is near us, and the Holy Spirit pours out God's love into our hearts, Romans 5, verse 5. And then verse 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Why? Well, because the steadfast love, the covenantal love of God, surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And that gives us cause to be glad in the Lord and to rejoice, to shout for joy. And so the question here for us is, uh, are you capable of joining David in saying the words of verses 1 and 2, uh, the words that we opened up with, where he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man or woman against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This big um, burst into happiness, saying that he has found happiness in this new relationship, this, this restored relationship with the Lord. Can you say that? Uh, do you rejoice and savor this gift of grace that we find in Jesus, God's forgiveness, his ultimate forgiveness for us, uh, this new status that he gives uh, in Jesus? Are you capable of joining David in these words and in this celebration? Uh, Christians, you know, we, we, we must continually look into the happiness of God in giving his son to reconcile us to himself. I mean, that's something we don't think about quite often, that God is a happy God. I mean, he made happiness. Um, and uh, it starts with looking deep into God's gift of grace at the cross, which gives you a new sense of uh, identity, gives you a new status when you receive Jesus by faith. And after receiving that gift of grace, we also walk in relationship with God, as we see uh, David here in verses 6 to 11. And just as a very, very last point before I close here, um, it's very, very important uh, as an evangelistic tool that we uh, seek to walk in the happiness, not downplaying depression, not downplaying uh, the hardships of life, but, uh, but to, to, to seek to walk in these ways that, uh, that the Lord gives us to safeguard happiness. Uh, we need to do that. We need to do that as an evangelistic tool. That's Because that's what drew me to the person who shared the gospel with me. I saw that his life um, seemed to, to have a balance of wisdom, of joy, and I didn't see that in anyone around me. And so I asked him, I, I, I saw his life and I wanted to have what he had when I was uh, going to be you know, 40 or 50 years old. I wanted to have his life because his life looked like it was worth living while mine wasn't. And uh, he shared the gospel with me. Because the gospel is what gave him that joy. It's what gives me joy today to share this with you, that even as someone who uh, you know, struggles with depression from time to time, and, and I'm being honest here, this, this is not, uh, I'm not you know, just saying things. This is a, this is a very real thing. Uh, God gives us hope in that, uh, in that he walks with us, he unites us to himself, and he gives us these tools to walk with him, but ultimately that he sets his love upon us as we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Let us pray together as we close. Uh, Father, thank you for your word again. Thank you that 
you are a God who is gracious in giving us your Son so that we may have life and life abundantly. And Lord, you give us peace uh, like the world cannot give. Uh, Lord, for many of us, we are um, depressed and we don't know what to do about it. And so, Lord, I ask that you would lay your hand upon us, that you would draw everyone who's listening to this closer to yourself, closer to a deeper devotion to you, and, Lord, simply to receive what you have to give. I pray that you would um, dispose our hearts or incline our hearts to uh, receive what you have to give in Jesus and by your Holy Spirit so that your work may be done in our lives and that we may be people marked by happiness and hope in this life. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.